0: My name is uh, Natalino Ronzitti, I am a professor of international law and uh, I'm teaching at the uh, Lewis University in Guido Carli in Rome, Italy. The subject of this lecture uh, this afternoon is about uh, the use of force in international relations and uh, I will uh, touch upon uh, the some controversial issues of this problem. The starting point is the Charter of the United Nations and the system of the United Nations. The system of the United Nations, in principle, is very clear. You have a general prohibition to use the force in international relations. This is stated by Article 2, Paragraph 4 of the Charter. And you have some exceptions. The exceptions are, in principle, Article 51, self-defense. But uh, with the practice, uh, we have uh, seen that there are other ex- exceptions. For instance, uh, use of a force by states authorized by the Security Council. And uh, of course, uh, you have uh, to pay attention also to general international law. And the third exception will be consent by the territorial states. After you have the system of a collective security by the United Nations, if there is a breach of peace, a violation of peace, or an act of aggression, the Security Council can state that there is a violation of Article 39. And the Security Council can take action. This action can be both non-forceful action, for instance, sanctions under Article 41, or you can have uh, Article 42. This means uh, measures, forceful measures, taken by the Security Council. Unfortunately, the Security Council, the provisions of the Charter have not been implemented as they were drafted at the San Francisco Conference. And the United Nations now have to do well on the cooperation of states in order to enforce international law. What is the problem I have to? Uh, I, I want to touch upon today. I will touch upon the uh, use of force by individual states. I will not dwell on the uh, collective system, of uh, the system as framed by donating the United Charter. I want just to uh, point out the general prohibition of use of the force which is addressing uh, to states uh, and uh, its exceptions. The bastion of the United Nations Charter is Article 2, paragraph 4. Article 2, paragraph 4 contains a general prohibition of the use of force in international law. And uh, this general prohibition means that the force is prohibited insofar as is uh, infringing territorial integrity or political independence of uh, states or in any other manner in contradiction with the principles of the United Nations. There are a number of interpretations which uh, uh, are aimed at uh, devaluating this blank prohibition, for instance uh, uh, old interpretation is in the sense that when you enter in a foreign territory not uh, to seize a territory or to change the political independence of the state, you are not committed a violation of article two four of the charter. this is not true this is not uh, true for two reasons since uh, you have to look at the practice of the United Nations. For instance, the the Article 1 of the definition of aggression, the resolution of the definition of of aggressions, says very clearly that aggression is a violation of uh, uh, territorial integrity, political independence, or sovereignty of any state. This means that when you enter foreign territory, you commit a violation of Article 2, Paragraph 4. This is the the, the first principle. And the second principle is that Article 4 is not made dependent upon the implementation of the United Nations Charter. This was said already by the International Court of Justice in the famous Corfu Channel case, the Court of Justice said that the prohibition of intervention was referring of uh, to uh, the prohibition of uh, use of force as uh, uh, understood by the United Nations is in force, is not depending on the implementation, on the full implementation of the Charter of the United Nations. So, even though the system of a collective security is not perfect, because was not realized according to the framers of the United Nations Charter, the Article Two Four contains a blank prohibition to use of the force in international relations. There are some authors discrediting Article Two Four, but it is, according to me, is not possible because. We have to reaffirm the permanent validity of the norm prohibiting the use of force in international relations. As a continental lawyer I will say a few words about the issue of this prohibition. Of course article 2(4) since is in the charter is treaty law but AFTA has becoming customary international law and today is a peremptory norm of is a peremptory norm of international law is a U.S. norm. I will say that not all com, all article 24. The mm, most important nucleus of article 24 is covered by a peremptory norm of international law. This means that a peremptory norm of international law cannot come into this way to do by a contrary practice, because the parentery norm of international law can be modified only by a sub- subsequent norm of international law having the same character. And there is another argumentation, another argument for saying that the prohibition of use of force is still alive, since when states are intervening in contravention of article 24 they don't say that now they have a complete freedom and complete liberty of use at the bellum they just say that they are abiding by the law of the Charter. For instance, that they are intervening in self-defense. Maybe this is not true, but the problem for a lawyer is to find out the opinion juris. And the opinion juris is that the states still believe in the cogency of Article 2, Paragraph 4. And this was stated several times also by the International Court of Justice. We have to remember that uh, the prohibition containing in Article 2.4 contains not only prohibition to use the actual force, but also threat to force. Threat to force is prohibited by Article 2.4, for instance, an ultimatum, if you have to do something otherwise. Otherwise, I intervene in your territory. This is prohibited by Article 2, Paragraph 4, again, unless there is a cause of justification. And then now I want to um, pay attention to the exception to the prohibition of use of force in international relations. As uh, I said at the starting of um, this lecture, the principal prohibitions are three. Uh, I will say the prohibitions. The um, uh, those uh, permissible actions uh, uh, accepted by uh, the majority of a lawyer uh, self-defense because you have Article 51 of the Charter. You have action. Authorized by the United Nations Security Council, and third, you have the consent by the territorial states. The principle, I will say in Latin word, "volenti non fit applies also in international law. But we shall see the limitation. Article 51 of the Charter. Sets out, sets out the principle of individual and collective self-defense. The problem, the major problem, is the interpretation of this right, of this right that is customary, international law, as all authors recognize, and as was stated also by the, in the International Court of Justice in several cases, or advisory opinion. But the problem is that uh, the interpretation of uh, Article 51, or I will say, of the uh, customary norm on self-defense is sometimes controversial. Since, uh, for instance, you have uh, some resolutions, I will say, very important declaratory resolutions by the General Assembly of the United Nations on the definition of aggression, but you don't have a general declaratory resolution about self-defense. Also, the uh, works that uh, were underway for the reform of the United Nations Charter, they tried. They didn't say that you are not you are interpreting Article 51. But anyway, no general resolution was conceived in order to in, give an interpretation to Article 51 of the Charter. The point to be stressed is that the self-defense should not be authorized by anybody. If states If a state intervenes in self-defense, this means that the state has been subjected to an armed attack and it has to repel the aggression. It doesn't need to be authorized by the Security Council. This is another problem that we have a little bit to elaborate on it. But I want to... Um, point out the requirement of uh, an action in self-defense and uh, the requiring the requirement of an action on self-defense are necessity proportionality and immediacy and necessity and uh, proportionality are very time honored requirement and uh, go back to the famous caroline case of uh, 1837. But they have spelled out also by the International Court of Justice in a number of cases what is important now that the International Court of Justice in its contentious competence or in its advisory competence have issued a number of judgments and advisory opinion on the meaning of the use of force, of the prohibition of use of force in international relations and on the meaning of the exception, in particular self-defense. But uh, I want to dwell not so much on necessity and the proportionality, but on immediacy. Since immediacy is uh, very controversial in uh, from a doctrinal point of view. Since we have uh, to face a very classical situation on the spot reaction, because, uh, for instance, a ship or an aircraft or a military aircraft is attacked and you react. Is, is on the spot self defense, and nobody questions this kind of self defense. You have a self defense. After an armed attack has occurred, and this also is not, uh, doesn't, uh, doesn't, uh, doesn't raise uh, some problem, uh, several problems, uh, unless as far as immediacy is concerned. But I will touch upon it later. And after, you have the problem of immediacy. What means immediacy? That you have to react immediately when you have been attacked. Or you can uh, need, sometimes, in order to prepare your armed forces, your armed forces in order to repel the attack. And the practice and also the doctrine says that uh, the reaction in self-defense should not be immediate, because sometimes you need uh, to find out the wrongdoers. For instance, in cases of a terrorist attack, or even uh, much more important, you need to prepare your armed forces for repelling the attack. For instance, if your enemy is very distant from your territory, you need a certain time. And in the literature, a lot of practice is quoted on this point. But the other very important problem is about the imminence of an attack. Are you entitled to intervene if the attack is imminent, if there is an attack which has not occurred? So if the missiles has not yet hit your own territory? And on this problem, there are two contending interpretations. On the other hand, on the one hand, you have... A number of authors, especially on the Anglo-Saxon uh, tradition, says saying that uh, you can repel an attack even though the attack is imminent. And on the other, especially in the continent, you have the author which uh, who says that uh, the attack uh, must have occurred in order you need to react. In self-defense. But if uh, even though there is this uh, controversial interpretation, one point is very clear that uh, you need the imminence. If uh, there is no imminence, you are not entitled to react in self-defense. So, for instance, the doctrine of a preemption. The doctrine of a preemption as a validity in international law. Very few authors say that the preemption, if an attack is not imminent, uh, has a, a positive uh, value, uh, I mean, a positive value according to international law. And the majority of authors uh, say that this is not the correct interpretation of a charter of the United Nations and of in international law. Uh, The recent practice uh, or recent statements, I will say, have uh, embraced the doctrine of uh, preemption, but uh, these uh, affirmations have been uh, almost uh, isolated in international law. Because we have uh, to distinguish between an imminent threat of attack and a latent threat the distinction is very important because if there is an imminent threat in this case you are entitled to react in self-defense under the doctrine of anticipatory self-defense but if you have just a latent threat in this case the competence is not of the states the competence is of the security council you report to the security council and this is a problem of collective security I referred to to the uh, panel of uh, eminent uh, personality uh, which was uh, established by the Secretary General in order to have uh, advice on the reform of the Charter of the United Nations. The panel of uh, the panel of um, permanent uh, of eminent uh, personality did not uh, say that uh, we have uh, to reform Article 51 of uh, the Charter. But uh, it is very interesting that uh, this uh, panel took stance according uh, to the doctrine that in the imminence of an armed attack, it is very clear that an armed attack will occur, you can intervene. And what is very important is is that the lawyers or the eminent personality uh, forming the panels uh, were representing all the major areas. of this world. So, not only the continent of Europe, of the United States, or the American continent, but also from Africa and from Asia. And I will say this document is very important. Of course, when there was the um, a um, resolution by General Assembly in, in 2005 at uh, the summit of uh, Heads head states of uh, government. They did uh, take a stance on this problem because this is a very doctrinal problem. And uh, what just they said, that uh, the provision of the Charter on the use of force, they are enough for inter- uh, the charter and that they are enough for guiding states uh, according uh, to international law. So there was no, apart from the use of force authorized uh, by the Security Council, where uh, I uh, I will do a a, a little bit later, the uh, General Assembly Resolution didn't take a stance on this problem. Another very contentious problem is the question of self-defense against non-state entities. This is very, is very recent, is very recent problem. That as you know that happened. This problem after the 11 and the destruction of the twin towers and. Uh, the problem was that uh, you, if uh, you can intervene against uh, state entities, especially against uh, terrorist groups, here still uh, there is no common position, I will say, in international law. Since uh, um, you have uh, some practicing, some practice say, saying yes is for this interpretation of uh, the Charter, You can intervene in self-defense against uh, non-state entities, and uh, it is what happened uh, after the 9/11. And uh, some organizations say yes. For instance, NATO, European Union, the Organization for uh, Cooperation and Security. In Europe, they say it's possible to intervene against uh, non-state actors, but the International Court of Justice uh, has been very cautious on uh, this problem. And uh, I will uh, cite just uh, two um, precedents. The first is the advisory opinion on the Wall on Palestine 2004, where uh, the International Court of Justice uh, made the reference to the right of a self-defense as a right exercised uh, by states, and there is another, there is a contentious case. There is a contentious case of uh, 2005 uh, Congo versus Uganda in which the International Court of Justice did not dwell on this problem. So if you read carefully this precedent, you can see that there are at least three or four judges who made a separate opinion saying that also, in case of attack by, from a non-state entity, a state is entitled to react in self-defense. Of course, Article 51 and customary international law preserves not only the right of individuals, but also the right of a collective self-defense. This means that other states can intervene at the help of the aggrieved states even though there, are, there is no treaty of alliance or other defensive pact, but it was important here that the intervention should be made at the request of the attacked states. You cannot intervene if there is no uh, request by the attacked states in um, for intervention in self-defense. And of course, the international community uh, should... Uh, see whether in the concrete case is a true self-defense or is a violation of Article 2.4 of the United Nations Charter, and for this reason, there is a procedural requirement in Article 51 saying that the action in self-defense should be reported to the Security Council. Why this? For two reasons. Because the Security Council shall judge if it's true self defense or not. And uh, since the Security Council should take all the measures necessary to repel the aggression. But what means all the measures necessary to repel the aggression? A mere ceasefire or asking the parties to solve. The controversy, peaceful, is not enough. The um, Security Council should, should uh, take concrete measures to repel the aggression. But uh, this uh, problem is also linked with the problem of duration of the self-defense. Self-defense should uh, last only for repel the aggression in order to impede that a new aggression will be started. But uh, sometimes uh, you are going beyond the necessity of self-defense because you want to uh, establish the security in the area. But this is not self-defense. This is collective security, and this does not belong to the States. But belongs to the Security Council. So, for instance, in the practice, you can see easily that uh, uh, NACCHO in self defense is uh, during, I will not say, is lasting, I will not say forever, but uh, is uh, uh, lasting uh, for uh, very much time. In this case, uh, is uh, I will say, uh, if uh, you have uh, repelled the aggression, the action should be in the hands of the Security Council. And this is the problem of collective security, uh, more than a problem of self-defense. This is enough for self-defense, even though I have not finished all the topics of self-defense, because it's very uh, wide and sometimes controversial. But um, I want to give uh, just a few words on another exception to the the, use of force in international relations. And uh, this is use of force authorized by the Security Council. There is nothing uh, literally in the Charter, but uh, you have interpretation. Some say that uh, in this case, there is a, a custom which has been framed within the charter within the United Nations or you can have a, a, a reading of both article thirty nine and forty eight of the charter and according to this interpretation force can be authorized by the security council and I will say that also the practice stands for this exception to the use of force in international relations. And I go back what I said about the Panel of Eminent Persons and the uh, General Assembly Resolution, which was adopted at the 2005 summit, uh, the uh, summit said that the provision of the Charter on the use of force are complete are enough, but the uh, General Assembly Resolution is stating that uh, these include also in authorization to states to use of force in international relations because states can be mandated by the security council to use the force in international relations the problem the crucial problem here is about the control by the security council because sometimes the security council as practice shows Gives an authorization, but there is a real control by the Security Council, and there is a question mark, there is a real control for all the duration of the operation, first problem. And the second problem that you need in this case, the authorization by the Security Council, the uh, agreement uh, between the five permanent members of the Security Council, if uh, there is no agreement in this case, uh, there is no resolution authorizing the use of force in international relations. And uh, apart from the case of the 50s, uh, this practice of authorization started after 1989, but lasted only, I will say, about 10 years after the rivalries between the Security Council started again, and the practice shows that it's very very, very difficult to obtain an authorization by the Security Council. This authorization is, uh, for instance, necessary for the humanitarian intervention. This is uh, also a controversial problem I will touch upon at the end of my lecture, but uh, there are a number of authors who says that uh, the humanitarian intervention without the authorization of the security council is a violation of the charter of the, the United Nations uh, for my part i wrote uh, often i wrote also a complete book on uh, this problem of humanitarian humanitarian intervention I say that the humanitarian intervention, if not authorized by the United Nations Security Council, is not in keeping with international law, but is not aggression, provided that is a genuine humanitarian intervention, and that this open the way on the exposed Authorization. Since the Security Council, and this up in the practice, I I have not time now to quote all the practice that I recorded in my writings, the Security Council may validate the action since it is not a violation of the aggression, because if it were a violation of aggression, the Security Council cannot validate an action with with is in contravention with a peremptory norm of international law so exposed authorization for me is possible and is possible also for a number of authors maybe sometimes is not explicitly an exposed authorization but the security Council take some uh, action which for sure means that this is a validation of the preceding intervention, of the preceding humanitarian intervention. The third, and I'm going toward the end very quickly, the third possibility to use the force in keeping with international law is the constant by the territorial state if the states in which the intervention takes place consents, there is no violation of international law. This has been uh, said by many authorities, and the old mm, Latin blocker, the voluntary non fit urea applies also in international law. But we have to be very careful. On this point, because the most controversial point with the consent of the territorial states is whether or not the government representing of the states is a true representative government and has the authority to ask aid for instance to quell riots or to quell a civil war because you can have. For instance, two contending governments in a territory, and it is very difficult to say that in this case, the consent given by government AA, is in keeping with international law. And the other problem is that when there is a civil war going on, in the States, it's possible that one government is controlling just a part of a territory. So the consent of this government, according to me, is valid only with the limits, with the borders of the territory it is controlling. It's very difficult to... Um, say that uh, is uh, the constant is valid uh, outside the border is controlling, and uh, we have also to be care- very careful to the case of puppet government and uh, so on. Uh, you have in the practice uh, you can see in the practice. Uh, there are treaties of guarantee according uh, uh, to states uh, permanent. Uh, they are very rare, but there are some. These treaties there uh, uh, were numerous in the past, but still they are in force in international law. And in this case, if you do, you have a treaty of a guarantee, the consent of uh, the territorial state should be given each time you are intervening in a foreign territory. This is very important. And also, it's very important that the problem, as uh, I um, stated before, of the effectiveness of the government asking for, for aid. And the other problem is the principle of self-determination, intervention in a foreign territory. When there are more competing uh, governments, uh, is an infringement of the right of self-determination or not? Question mark. This is uh, the the problem of foreign intervention in um, alien territory is very important in international law. I have given the examples of use of force uh, that uh, is permitted in international law. But there are several other controversial issues that usually the author uh, catalogates uh, between permissible, non-permissible use of force in international law. One is the intervention for protecting national, nationals abroad. If your uh, citizens abroad are in a mortal danger, and uh, the uh, territorial sovereign is uh, unable or unwilling to protect, to rescue your citizens, are you entit- entitled to intervene in a foreign territory or not? According to me, yes, but uh, the rationale is not the rationale of a self-defense. There are some authors say that in this case the citizens are an extension of the territory of the intervening states, but this doctrine, this theory is very artificial. I will say that this was a right which existed before the entry into force of the United Nations Charter and still existed after the entry into force of the United Nations Charter. And if you have a look at the practice of states, you can see that this practice now belongs not only just to a part of the international community, but many other states, which one time were against the doctrine of intervention for protecting nations abroad, now, say yes that this is in keeping with the international law. Humanitarian intervention and the responsibility to protect. Of course, responsibility to protect means that you are obliged to protect your own citizens, genocide is permitted it's permitted not only by conventional international law but it's also prohibited by customary international law, is also prohibited by a peremptory norm of international law is a crime the genocide is an international crime. But it's possible to intervene in a foreign territory for humanitarian intervention. uh, there is uh, a scant practice on it, the doctrine uh, is uh, divided there is uh, no common opinion on this problem I I stated my position about humanitarian intervention and uh, if uh, you look uh, have a look to a number of uh, manuals of international law you can uh, see that the scholars are are divided on this subject. Armed reprisals are permitted. Armed reprisals are different from self-defense. Armed reprisals are in violation of international law. This is sure, there are, um, there's nothing uh, literally in the Charter of the United Nations, but uh, you have a several interpretations of the Charter, and what I'm saying has been also uh, stated by the International Court of Justice, armed uh, reprisals in time of peace. Of course, it, this is different from belligerent reprisals are in violation of international law, and I don't share the opinion of those few authors who are uh, inventing the doctrine of defensive armed reprisals. This uh, is a blurring self-defense with reprisal. Reprisal is a reprisal. a self-defense, self-defense, even though, in a concrete case, is uh, very difficult to distinguish. But anyway, armed Price are uh, in violation of uh, international law. The fourth controversial issue is the uh, use of a force for facilitating a self-determination. This, uh, I wrote not Stephen, which uh, much extends <laughs> on this problem uh, some a number of years ago at the time of uh, violent self-determination. And uh, this was an issue very popular during uh, the decolonization of the 60s and part of the 70s. But uh, still there are occasion from time to time uh, for uh, saying, at least for those who share this opinion, that intervention for facilitating self-determination is uh, permissible. The problem uh, here, very difficult, is to mm, verify who is the self. A minority is a people. A minority is uh, is not a people, is a minority, is not entitled to self-determination. But what is a minority? What is the people? And uh, this can be a source of a confusion and also this problem has been a very controversial international law. I want to conclude on uh, my lecture. Concluding saying that uh, according to me we have to state the permanent validity of the prohibition of use of force in international relations. Those uh, very few opinions saying that there was a repudiation of the prohibition of use of force in international relations, you want to go back to the 19th centuries, not in keeping with international law. Now, the prohibition of the use of force is covered by a peremptory norm of the international law. The other point is that Article 51 and the right of self-defense has been the object of a contending interpretation. But uh, I will say that uh, nowadays uh, that uh, uh, most part of the doctrine, also in the continent, uh, is of the opinion that uh, you can exercise the right of self-defense not only in case of an armed attack, when an armed attack, I will say, has occurred, but also in the imminence of an armed attack. If the enemy is is, uh, on the point to attack you, you are entitled to intervene in self-defense and this opinion now is gaining currency in international law, even in the continent. The other controversial problem about the manifestation of the practice is self-defense against non-state entities. I said that there are um, some opinions uh, and some practices supporting this right, and I said also that the International Court of Justice has been very cautious on this point, but in principle there are a number of authorities saying that... uh, use of force against non-state entities, especially terrorists, is not a violation of uh, international law. On the contrary, humanitarian intervention is very still very controversial in international law, and uh, I will say that Denis, there is no common opinion juris on its legality unless It is authorized by the United Nations Security Council. Of course, if the United Nations Security Council authorizes humanitarian intervention, this is permitted under international law. The practice of the humanitarian intervention by individual states without authorization is still controversial in international law. And this concludes my lecture. Thank you.